welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Welcome, you are very welcome to episode 120 of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Dr. Lucy Folks, who is an academic psychologist at the University of Oxford, and she researches mental health and social development with a particular interest in adolescent and student mental health. She is also an author, and her book, What Mental Illness Really Is and What It Isn't, explores how we talk about mental health and mental illness and explains why we need to rethink the conversation around these things. And in this episode, I chat to Lucy about her book, about her work, and what inspired her to write this book. We chat about the language that is used to talk about mental health and mental illness, and how the words that we choose can have both a positive and negative impact. We look at the need to distinguish between the normal challenges of modern life and actual illness, and we discuss the medicalization of human emotions. We chat about the good bits and the bad bits of mental health awareness, and we have a good look at what that even means and who that conversation helps and we chat about things like social media and environment and parenting and diagnosis and all these different factors that can play into mental health and mental illness. It's a fascinating topic and it makes for a fascinating conversation I think anyway I certainly enjoyed it. It allowed me to explore a lot of things that I've kind of been thinking about a lot recently but didn't necessarily feel that I had enough knowledge and enough background and probably the right words to discuss it properly. It's one of the reasons why I enjoyed Lucy's book so much and if you wanted to take a deeper dive into a lot of the things that we talk about in this episode then I'd highly recommend it. Obviously there's a lot of complexity there, there's a lot of nuance to the conversation and it's a real fine line to make sure that no one gets left out of the conversation when we're trying to change the language we use to have that conversation and it's a fine line that Lucy is able to walk with a lot of compassion That really came across when I read the book and hopefully it really comes across in this episode. I was very grateful that I had her to kind of walk me through it. What I really liked about this conversation is that we talk about a lot of things that I've talked about on this show many, many times, but we talk about them in a very different way. We come at them from a different angle. A really good example is social media. When I've talked about that on Proper Mental before with guests, it tends to be about how social media affects our self-esteem, how it impacts our dopamine, trolls, you know, negative comments, that sort of stuff, the addictive nature of social media. But as Lucy says in this conversation... Social media in itself is not a behaviour, it's not a singular thing. And coming from an academic background, she's got the research, she's got the studies that show that social media is much more about the individual using it and what is going on for them in their environment, in their world, in their day-to-day life has much more impact on what they do with social media and what social media does for them than just saying that all social media is bad. So when I say it's complex and when I say there's nuance, that's the sort of thing we're talking about. Not easy to do, but a lot of fun to do and very much worth doing. Everything you need to connect with Lucy is in the episode notes. There's links there to her website, all the different things that she does, and there's links there to buy the book as well. It's available everywhere. If you want to connect with me, all that stuff's in the episode notes too. Instagram is usually the best place to get hold of me. But what I'd really like is if you could take two minutes to review this episode or any other episode that you've listened to. You can give me five stars on Spotify. 
you can give me five stars and a few kind words on iTunes. It would be very much appreciated. And this is episode 120 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Dr. Lucy Fox. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. Here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest today is Lucy Folks. How are you, mate? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, mate, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. Um, I thought what would get us off probably to the best start, to put a bit of context to the uh, to the conversation, Lucy, was if you could just tell me a little bit about what it is exactly that you do in the in the mental health space. What's your um what's your role day to day? Yes, I'm an academic psychologist um, at the University of Oxford, so that means I'm a researcher. So I'm not a clinician. I don't uh, see people with mental health problems or provide therapy or anything like that. So I'm very much just interested in um, researching them from more of a distance, I suppose, looking at patterns more broadly. And I'm very interested in uh, adolescent mental health in particular, so in teenagers, and also more broadly how we talk about mental health and the effects of uh, this massive drive to talk more about mental health in public, which is broadly a good thing, um, but there are some issues. So that's that's what I've become interested in, and that's what I spend my day doing, thinking about that. Yeah, sure. What was your route into this, Lucy? What was it about this that kind of got you got you hooked, got you intrigued? Um, well, I was just always interested in psychology, and I did psychology undergraduate, um, and then, like lots of other psychology undergraduates, I was interested in the clinical side of it. Um, so then I ended up going down the route of doing a PhD in mental health. Um, and then in terms of this specific area, so I had my own, uh, problems with mental health when I was, which started when I was 20, uh, and there wasn't really much of a public conversation about it then, or it was really starting to change. It was sort of, it just coincidentally happened right on the cusp of people talking about this more. And I noticed, um, as the years went on and I noticed people talking about this more, I started feeling like a lot of the messages weren't that helpful or that I personally wouldn't have found it helpful, especially the way things are being talked about in schools and universities. And I was interested in why that was the case, you know, why this these well-intended ideas I felt weren't really useful, um, at least wouldn't have been useful for me. And then I wrote a book about that. And then off the back of the book, I wanted to do more uh, research into it myself. Yeah, sure. And, you know, we're going to talk a lot about that book today, which I've read and which is why I've, I've reached out to you. And um, yeah, it gave me so much, um, so much to think about, you know, and obviously talking about this stuff as much as I do, how I talk about it and how I phrase things and think about things is really, really important to me. Mm. And there, was, um, there was a lot of aha moments when I was reading it um, and I got a lot from it. So I'm really looking forward to sort of getting into some of the ideas um, with you today. Um, I was kind of wondering really to start us off that what sort of things that you were seeing in your in your work and in the world around you and I know you kind of touched on that already a little bit but that kind of made you think that there was this need for this book and to explore these things a bit deeper yeah so I I I remember particularly being a um a lecturer and a personal tutor at university and observing the sort of messages that were happening around me at that university um and some things as as a lecturer, so people coming to me talking about their own mental health problems, particularly people talking about anxiety as a reason to not do something and my difficulty with figuring out what the best approach there was. And we can talk much more about that because um, 
you know um avoidance isn't necessarily the best thing to do when you're anxious it's the best thing to do in the moment but it's not necessarily the best thing to help that person in the long run uh so that got me very interested about what messages are we giving people who um say they're anxious and don't want to do presentations for example um but then this I guess I was concerned about the alarmist nature of some of the messaging I suppose and the lack of specificity of it so for example I remember um, a member of staff having in the bottom of their um, email signature uh, saying in capital letters in crisis question mark like go to this and then a link to the student mental health web pages which on the face of it seems like a really good a really good idea you know maybe if you do reach someone that is in crisis and isn't already getting help you're, you're giving them a clue about where to get that help but I was interested in the idea that that that's on your email signature. That's going out to everyone. So are all students receiving the message that it's it's very possible that they might be in crisis? And I'm I'm interested in this idea that all this messaging is planting the message of kind of vulnerability in teenagers and young people, especially, so that when any sort of difficult emotion or negative feeling comes up, they're immediately primed to frame it as a mental health problem in a way that I think is unhelpful and not to call them snowflakes or anything like that. I can tell you I'm not interested in that term or that idea, but this this accidental um, side effect that we might be telling everyone that they're unwell when they're not, that's that's um, really what started to concern me. And no one was talking about that. Everyone was just making the assumption that the more we talk about this, the better. Like the, the, the only issue is that we're not talking about it enough. And so that's when I wanted to write a book to try and provide a bit of a counter narrative, I suppose. Yeah, sure. I suppose with the whole um, conversation around mental health awareness, which is what drives a lot of these mm-hmm. things, you know, the email signatures and posts mm-hmm. on social media and all that sort of stuff. I suppose it's, it's so tricky, isn't it? Because we're, it's great that people are more aware, but then mm-hmm. the more people are aware, then the potential, it's almost like a runaway train almost, mm-hmm. you know, so the conversation gets so far away from from where it originated, if that makes sense. And I always think awareness is really funny, a funny thing because we've got a whole bunch of people that are really aware and maybe talking about it to the point where it's maybe not as helpful. You know, there's too many words, there's too many uh, phrases that we can use that don't really mean so much. Mm-hmm. And then there's also still a load of people who aren't aware at all yeah. because, you know, I, I, I first started getting poorly in 2016. I didn't have a clue what mental health awareness was. And, in, mm-hmm. you know, it's quite a vibrant community now. And I think in Instagram, I see stuff all the time because I follow those accounts, but when I didn't mm-hmm. follow those accounts, yeah, I didn't know yeah. anything about right. it. So it's so hard, isn't it? To walk that fine line between like how much we need and where we need it and when we need it. And it just, it's really murky waters, isn't it? It, it absolutely is. It's incredibly difficult to write and talk about this in the right way. Um, you mentioned a lot of interesting things there. Firstly, the idea that this mental health awareness is potentially a bit of an echo chamber, you know, on social media, it's like the the people who are receiving those messages are the ones who are already aware. So we're still not reaching the people who need it. And also that in parallel with this sort of, over pathologizing over medicalizing sort of excessive awareness if you want to call it that is also happening in parallel with lots of other people who still um aren't aware enough and who badly need help uh so that's why it's it's very difficult to talk about this because i think both of those things can be true at the same time but it's yeah it's a difficult message to communicate yeah, definitely. And I mean, you know, just because something's hard to talk about, I mean, that's normally something we need to talk about it more, right? We can't be scared of the conversation in case, um, you know, in case we get something wrong or in case we're misunderstood. And yeah. um, it's more important to kind of un- 
uncover stuff really but yeah that sort of medicalization of normal human emotions i mean as humans we have a very very complex range of emotions and some of those are easier to explain than others but like generally as a human we're going to have hard times right and just because you're going through something it doesn't necessarily mean it's a, a disorder or a condition or anything like that and that's where the lines start to blur a little bit at first i think yeah and i'm particularly worried about how you communicate that message to young people without dismissing their distress because you know something doesn't have to be a disorder for it to you know be distressing and really difficult it needs to be validated and taken seriously but I'm very keen to promote this idea that it's not all a disorder or even what we might frame as a mental health problem because not because I'm trying to invalidate what they feel but because I think adding that label for some people in some situations can actually just add to their distress so if you've gone through breakup or had something difficult happen or whatever and you are experiencing a lot of distress and you then conceptualize it or think of it as depression or PTSD or whatever you you are potentially adding burden to an already difficult situation because then you worry you know is there something wrong with you do you have an illness does that affect how you can talk about it does that affect your capacity to get better so I think this it's definitely true that these labels for some people are helpful but for other people uh can pathologize very difficult experiences but experiences that it isn't useful to uh use that kind of terminology I guess yeah sure do you think that um something I think about a lot is this kind of like umbrella term of mental health mm. and we sometimes kind of use that um those two words together almost as a way of um, not talking about, you know, mm. so you could have something really, really um, distressing going on in your life, or, you know, you could be really at the point of crisis and say, mm. oh, I'm having problems with my mental health. Mm. I, it's, you know, that if I went to a doctor and said, I'm having problems with my mental health, that could mean two things. It could mm. mean like, you know, I'm in a bit of a, uh, I'm experiencing a few things at the moment. My mood's a bit low. I'm kind of not really sure what's going on with me. And it could mean I need immediate medical attention and intervention, but that sort of phrase itself, we can almost kind of hide behind it a little bit and we throw it around quite, quite easily without maybe understanding what it means for the individual, of course. Yeah. And that, I mean, mental health is even worse than this, but also mental health problems. They're very sort of, yeah, umbrella terms are very sanitized terms to try and avoid um, maybe more stigmatized terms or ideas that are harder to get on board with like mental illness or mental disorder. But it means they're so broad that they essentially don't really mean anything at all because yeah, they, they encompass suicidality and you know having a bad day and then you run into problems with these awareness campaigns that give up I mean I could say a million things about awareness campaigns but if you just you know send the message like everyone has problems with their mental health sometimes you can try going for a walk or talking to your friend and then you know if you don't define or understand what mental health means then it's you know that message is potentially going to the wrong people those things are useful sometimes but sometimes they won't even touch the sides and you Part of the issues with this, yeah, that term and this messaging in general is that it's a very light touch. It's sending some information to the wrong people, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I suppose it gets to the point, right, where it's really hard to like, what's that saying about um, shutting the stable door once the horse has bolted or something like that, right? It gets mm. a bit a bit like that. And I always think that um, it's, a, you know, it's a really useful sometimes parallel to use uh, physical health as a way of, you know, talking about the importance of our mental health. But I also think that if you went to your GP and said, oh, and they said, what, what do you need me for today? And you said, I'm really struggling with my physical 
mental health. Mm. They're going to say, well, I need to know a little bit more. I'm going to need mm. some words to be able to help. And mental health is the same, isn't it? Like mm. we need to have the words for that person to, to get the help and the support, whatever that might look like and whatever might be going on with them. But yeah, we just need a few more words rather than using that phrase to like catch everything that's not, you know, it's like when life yeah. isn't perfect, it catches yeah. everything else, doesn't it? It does. And that side of things is relevant as well. And we should talk about the sort of general day-to-day struggles and difficulties but it's difficult when you use the same language for all of it um and yeah the parallel with physical health stuff is useful sometimes um sometimes it isn't um but yeah that's separate question I suppose but um yeah I've I have issues with this term mental health and mental health problems definitely yeah and I I, you know when so many mental health problems so many mental illnesses it's it is when like thoughts and feelings and you know all these things are like out of control but they're mm. all stuff that humans have anyway mm. does that make sense it's like, mental illness isn't putting something there it's taking something that's already there and like putting it on steroids or blowing it up mm. and um I, I just think it becomes really really tricky even with like diagno- diagnosis i suppose isn't it because the the words become quite commonplace and we're trying to talk about stuff we don't understand and even getting the right diagnosis can be can be hard if the language isn't there is I suppose what I'm trying to say yeah uh yeah I like that um description and it's the way I conceptualize it in the book and always actually is this idea that all these symptoms and in inverted commas are on a spectrum they say so they're not entirely new processes they're just up at the extreme end of things that we think and feel and do all the time um it's just yeah that they've gone out of control or reach the point where they start to you know affect your daily functioning and that's when it's yeah the problem has clearly set in this is a really really big question right and when I was reading your book I was like I'm gonna have to ask it and I don't really I haven't worked out a way to ask it in a smaller way (laughs) but when it comes to language when it comes to we talk about this stuff how do we begin to you know that horse has bolted we're getting it back Mm. towards the stable door how do we begin to like unpick this you know Mm -hmm. because it's that that mental health now is out there these awareness campaigns have been great for just getting everyone have it on their radar in some way to some extent how then do we start to kind of make sure people are aware of using the right words and and thinking about this stuff yeah I've been asked that before like don't you think it's too late like the cat's out the bag now kind of thing to use another metaphor but like yeah can we can we pull it back in now but I I hope so otherwise um everything that I'm doing is a waste of time but I I think one thing I mean it's going to take a while but I think one really important thing would be to actually test the effects of some of these uh campaign materials so often these campaigns are uh run with absolutely no testing they're not evidence-based whether they actually do what they are proposed to do so there's some evidence that like campaigns like time to change are useful in some respects on a sort of societal level in terms of improving stigma and um intention to seek help for example but no one is really or not that I'm aware of designed experiments and studies to assess what different wording in campaigns how that affects people's interpretation, how that affects their understanding of themselves, all that kind of stuff. I think it would be really useful to get some data on what these different things are doing and then design campaigns around that rather than what's happening at the moment. And it's happening in public health, um, you know, like charity campaigns, but also uh, in schools and things. A lot of very well-intentioned people are coming up with their own ideas about what information you should share 
like for example giving a whole school assembly about self-harm awareness without actually necessarily considering whether that's a good thing to teach teenagers all all teenagers about self-harm or considering about how you should teach them about it you know that's a good that's a well-intentioned idea but there's it's not evidence-based about whether that's doing what you think it might be doing yeah sure I suppose um you know using self-harm as an example as well there's a lot of difference to someone um in that assembly who um isn't self-harming and hasn't considered it to someone Mm -hmm. who is currently dealing with self-harm in some way you know that's gonna that's gonna affect people very 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 differently and I suppose that's a hard thing about awareness you know there's certain times when I kind of think like well we're all aware now what now like where are the where are the solutions you know to go with this awareness and yeah I, I never really thought about that that awareness on a societal level and then awareness on a on other an individual level as well that's um yeah yeah, yeah I mean yeah. this is the problem with a lot of what I'm very interested in at the moment is about what's happening in schools is it's just giving the same information to everyone and there's all sorts of reasons why you know there'll be people in that assembly on different places in the spectrum um of you know how much they're self-harming or how depressed they feel or whatever and you're, you're just sharing the same information with all of them and that might not necessarily um be useful um the other thing you said is about um moving towards solutions another thing i'm interested in about awareness at the moment is that we're making people very aware of mental health problems but we're not pairing that with access to services that could actually help so you're potentially now just telling people they have a problem making them very aware of it and not allowing them to do anything about it so i don't know how if that's any more useful than you know how they felt before the awareness bit could be potentially there's you know there's a lot of importance in um you know self-understanding and having the right language to get help from your your friends and your family for example but it's certainly not been matched with improved access to services or not yet yeah yeah it's tricky I I did an episode um probably last year with uh, an advocate called uh, John Salmon I don't know if you've like seen him 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 around but um he was talking about like signposting being the new awareness and I really like that Mm. because it's very easy you know maybe someone with a a big profile maybe says something that's a really good soundbite and it goes viral on on social Mm. media and you know we're so keen to support that and yes it's a great way of reaching a lot of people and getting that message out and things like that but then at the same time you kind of think like well you know, we're using a lot of people power for something that's just words, you know, wouldn't be amazing if we all shared, you know, the same, you know, phone numbers for all these different, like if we all got the hub of hope and we all shared that and that went viral Mm, three million times, I think that'd be much more effective. And I've I've quite, you know, I quite like the, uh, the idea of that, but do you you think that this, this language you're using, the, the, um, the conversations around it, I mean, social media has got to be a factor in that, right? Because we're talking about something that's really nuanced, really complex, and we're only trying to sum it up in, you know, 300 characters or whatever. Yeah, it is on, I on do Twitter. think that's part of the problem. You, you can't convey the complexity of it. So it inevitably gets kind of flattened to the point of being, you know, potentially meaningless, um, or at least sort of very open to misinterpretation. It's interesting now when to see the response to some of these mental health awareness days and stuff on Twitter, but I think people... Uh, yeah react to it uh, like they're saying you know this isn't yeah basically we don't need awareness we need um, access to services and things so I think there's been a bit of a a vibe shift in how enthusiastic people are but yeah it's very easy to share these things and pat yourself on the back but it's yeah I don't know how much help they're actually providing yeah I always like to say that um, we sometimes confuse 
Instagram reach with actually reaching people, right? Because mm. it's, you know, I know I could make a very little pretty post and yeah, it's yeah. okay to not be okay. And I could pop it on my Instagram this morning. My engagement would be great. And I'd feel yeah. good about myself all weekend. You know, all these people that liked my post. And if I went through the likes, they'd just be all the people that just know about this stuff and do what exactly. I do. And, you know, yeah. it's an, it, Well, yeah. And the, the thing about likes is a good point. Like it's easy to share this stuff and get some social validation and, and, yeah, feel that you're doing something, but I don't know if you are necessarily. And then the other, yeah, the aspect of social media that I'm interested in is that um, obviously teenagers are especially likely to be on social media. And the the way, I mean, moving away from those kind of awareness posts, the way it's affecting their conceptualization of, you know, their emotions is important. So you've probably seen there's lots of TikTok videos that's like, here are five signs that you have high functioning anxiety and then it's like five really generic experiences that everyone will have but then you see the comments on it it's like oh my god I didn't know that was me like I've scored five out of five and it's it's yeah I think TikTok and and social media more broadly have a lot to answer for in terms of encouraging people to conceptualize their distress as sort of an identity with a label with a name and then the more all of them do it, especially the more that um, popular teenagers do it with high social status, um, they will potentially influence each other. Um, yeah. You know, it's very well established that, that teenagers are susceptible to social influence. Um, and there's little pockets of research showing that it that, that mental health symptoms can spread amongst friends as well. So that's, yeah, another knock-on effect of the supposedly good idea to talk about all this more, but it's like what what's it doing to those people okay sometimes yes obviously for some people it might be the ticket to understanding themselves and a ticket to getting help which is really important but for other people perhaps it's encouraging them to see you know normal developmental processes as a as a problem that needs labeling I guess yeah yeah definitely I feel like we all want to feel seen right and then we Mm. see that post and we've got some stuff going on and I think human beings are so complex and we're all too busy trying to pretend that we're not so when you see a list of like really normal thoughts written Mm. down and you kind of think oh my god I feel seen I must have this disorder but they are just kind of normal things because we all have things that we overthink or that we worry about or that kind of you know anxiety is itself is as itself is a like a pretty normal thing isn't it it's only the disorder part of it where where things I mean it's 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 awful and it's horrible um but it's extremely um I mean just the fact that it's common doesn't mean you need to just put up with it but I, I I feel that anxiety at a manageable level is often the sort of price you pay for living an interesting challenging life you know you have to if you eradicate anxiety from your life it means you remove a lot of interest and opportunities so um it's very difficult to get across that message to teenagers to you know to make sure to get the message to the ones who really need support because you know anxiety is treatable and there's lots of things you can do to manage it uh, if it becomes a problematic level but the goal is never to eradicate anxiety um, and I think if we create that message, then, well, we're doing them a disservice because life just doesn't work that way. But also, it's yeah, we're potentially shutting down lots of opportunities and in interesting parts of life. 
Yeah, definitely. And, you know, if you, we, we, as humans, you know, we're kind of designed, if you look at the original model, we're kind of designed for a certain amount of challenge in our lives, be mm. that sort of, you know, physical or, or mental. And, um, you know, it is important to have that. And I suppose if you're not having, if you're staying away from those more challenging, interesting things, as you say, well, you, you might have other problems further down the line, because, you know, we are designed to kind of, you know, have that a certain level of excitement and ups and downs. And that's, yeah. you know, that's kind of the kind of yeah, the design. Fair the meaning and the interesting stuff comes from I mean I've definitely had problems with you know anxiety being really at the severe very problematic end um but anxiety in general you know if I didn't do the things that made me anxious I wouldn't have done essentially anything at all in life you know I think it's a really important message to get across that you have to yeah that it that it is part of doing meaningful interesting things and that that doesn't mean you dismiss it or ignore it you know it might be about learning how to do things gradually or learning how to do things with help or learning how to do things whilst you're anxious yeah I I mean if you yeah sorry Lucy I just jumped in on you there but um I I think that if you have big problems of anxiety or um maybe a, an illness that's like rooted in anxiety something mm-hmm. like um ocd or something like that mm-hmm. and you go into therapy for that a big part of that therapy is like exposure therapy isn't it and, and you know and taking these these things on that's kind of the way to get better from all these yeah. things really so and this is a really big message that i think is being lost uh in the conversation about anxiety is that which i alluded to earlier is that avoidance i.e not doing the thing that makes you anxious will maintain and exacerbate anxiety in the long run because what when you do something that makes you anxious it gives you two things so firstly it gives you the opportunity to see that it might not be as bad as you thought it was going to be but secondly it gives you the opportunity to learn that you can cope so you can do things that make you anxious and you can still do them and you can figure out in the moment various things that will enable you to cope if you just avoid doing things that makes you anxious or encourage that in other people like the students in your school or your university then you're robbing them of those opportunities it might be that if they're at the higher end of anxiety then they will need lots of help they might need a total break from doing anything for a little while they might need you know therapy they might need a lot of hand-holding and graded exposure and gradual steps and you know behavioral experiments and testing it out they might need awful lot of help but I it distresses me that the message being received by people again in an in a in a well-intended um goal to help is actually just setting up a, a worse problem in the long run yeah sure and then I suppose it's like what to do next right so sometimes I often say about my own experience is one of the reasons I didn't ask for help for a long time is because I didn't have the words I didn't know what was going on so I didn't know how to to ask about it and by the time I spoke to a GP I'd been in therapy for a long time and I was able to say to my GP, I, I think I'm depressed. Um, you know, I had that sort of understanding of, of my headspace at that time. And so that can be really useful if we see something and do some reading and think, oh, that might apply to me and then yes. take it to a professional and say, this might be what's going on with me. What do you think? Um, and I do think it's really important for people to be involved in their own diagnosis, right? We know that that's a, a can be a good thing, but it's when we see that thing and go, oh, I think I'm depressed. Mm. And then don't, then we don't do anything with it. We take the label, right. And just carry the label around. And it's like, well, hang on. It's that's or, for the medical professionals to. Yeah. Or can't do anything with it because the help isn't there. But what you say there is, 
really important, which is this is when the system works and awareness works. Like the whole goal, right, is that we share this information so that people who are struggling can be given the language and the words to understand themselves, but also to communicate that difficulty to others and therefore get help. I mean, that model is exactly what um, all these awareness campaigns are based on. And that's, you know, your description of what happened to you is exactly how it should work. And that's the good side of it. It's just that you also potentially then that information leaks out to, for example, a teenager who's having a typical experience of low mood. They then think, okay, I must have depression. Um, and either they, and well, similar to anxiety, they might start changing the way they think about themselves and the way that they behave in a way that's ultimately um, becomes self-fulfilling or exacerbates the problem or they turn up to the GP to get help and the, the help isn't available um, or it becomes a sort of you know teenagers co-ruminate as in they talk about their feelings with with their friends uh, in some of an unhelpful way so potentially yeah, I'm interested in the idea that you get groups of teenagers that then are together conceptualizing you know common emotions as mental health problems and and then you get the issue which the people who really are seriously unwell they feel like and there's evidence of this you know they feel like the language has been stolen from them and they then don't have you know you if everyone says they're depressed everyone says they have depression then that word starts to lose meaning for the people who really need it and that that was one thing that really drove me to write the book I think that's a big problem yeah and that's really difficult to navigate right mm. you know sort of using um a medical diagnosis as an adjective and mm. that can be really really and some of them I suppose some words get kind of reclaimed. It's like, you know, I might say that our, our conversation today was really sick and we'd both know what I meant by it. Right. But obviously that word comes from somewhere else. And some of the words around mental illness have started to mean other things. You know, people will say like, oh, I'm like super anxious and they're not anxious. They're just kind of like, you know, up for a, you know, they've had a few too many coffees and they're up for a exciting day. Um, and it's really hard to Anxiety and anxious is a particularly difficult example because that it's the same word for the clinical concept as it is for the emotion that we all feel all the time. So it's particularly difficult to even try and provide a solution for that one because it is just the same word. Um, but yeah, things like, for example, the word trauma, which was sort of originally designed to describe quite a specific kind of event, a very originally um, an event in which you your life was at risk or you believed it to be. But that now has become so expanded that people essentially use it to describe any difficult event. And then yeah. again, you, you, you then are sort of taking away that word potentially from people or taking away its power and its impact uh, yeah. from the people who, who really need it to have that power. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I remember for myself, I used to see the trauma word banded around all mm. over the place. And I used to think, well, I've never experienced trauma. So maybe I'm not sick enough. So maybe mm -hmm. like, I just need to sort this out on my own and I can't ask for help, you know, because that word was then banded around so easily. And then, um, you know, now I've spent a bit more time in the, in the space. I know that that word can mean something truly awful. And it can also mean like, you know, just something that's just a bit of the human condition or, mm. you know, a natural um, experience. You don't, you don't need to have experienced trauma to experience depression or any other, uh, mental health problem or mental disorder uh it increases your risk that you'll develop those things but um it's a it's a definite phenomenon that people can have these disorders without having any any appreciable trauma and that's 
why yeah I don't agree with the argument that we need to reconceptualize all of this as response to trauma because there's there's definite cases of people who develop these things in the absence of trauma so it's I, it's not a complete explanation I don't think yeah sure I mean in your in your book you mentioned the uh, Viktor Frankl quote about you know mm-hmm. some of these things being a, comp- a completely normal reaction to something that's really abnormal and that kind of that's a really nice way to to say it originally into that response to trauma when something awful happens well then of course it's going to make us feel differently yeah. or behave differently or respond differently that kind of yeah though that's tricky because then some people use that as an argument to say that it, we therefore shouldn't call the responding reaction a disorder or an illness but I don't agree with that I think even if something has very understandable cause or trigger event, you can still end up with a set of symptoms and experiences that are so disabling and debilitating that I think it's useful to to conceptualise that as a disorder or an illness. Um, That yeah, there are some people who feel that that's not right and that it's not fair to call it an illness if it's, you know, if there's an obvious external cause, but I don't, I think you can still see what the end point is and think about that it's useful to think of that as as an illness but not everyone agrees and it's not the same for everyone some people love the idea of getting rid of diagnoses and explaining what's happened to them just in terms of trauma some people really want to hold on to their diagnoses because that's a very useful way of helping them understand themselves and again I think both of those things can be true at the same time yeah very much so it's down to the individual isn't it kind of what people need and what works for people and um and things Definitely. like that. And, yeah. And sorry. Yeah. I mean, often these arguments are imply that we need to come up with one solution for everyone. And it doesn't, I don't think it works like that. Like you said, people are so complicated. Their circumstances vary so much. It depends, you know, on the individual, on the clinician, on the context, whatever. Sometimes it's useful to think about it as a disorder and sometimes it isn't. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and you know, back to using the, the, the languages adjectives adjectives as mm. well it kind of you know for some people that's really um distressing and other people don't mind at all you know so mm. again it's really really hard um i heard um i recently spoke to um rory o'connor you know and he was saying about um the using the word commit around suicide mm. and you know like yes we you know it's a good thing not to be using that word but at the same time if someone's bereaved by suicide and they're using that word who are we to tell them not yeah, to right yeah. it's like yeah, yeah. it's just so so complex it is um, and you, you it's and i certainly have to be very careful about the idea of you know policing these words i i broadly want to make the points that i make but it's it's difficult on an individual level to try and i don't you should you know tell people they're not allowed to use certain words i don't think that's helpful again coming back to the importance of sort of validating people's distress and yeah it's you also you know you can't take words away from people unless you replace them with something else you know they use these words because it's a useful way of understanding themselves and talking about what's happening to them so you yeah I've got to be careful about saying oh you're not allowed to use that if, if you don't offer them anything in return yeah, especially when you've been like bombarding them on Instagram, telling them to talk. And then as soon yeah. as they do, you tell them they're using the wrong words. That's not going to keep anyone in the conversation. Well, yeah, there's this difficult, definite difficult aspects of my work. And then it's sort of clashing with a lot of, yeah, public advice and information on this topic. So it's a very difficult thing to wade through. And, I, you know, I do get criticised for it sometimes, but it's, yeah, it's it's very difficult. I still think it's important to try and say the things that I'm saying. 
Yeah, very much so. And, you know, with with the risk of, you know, sitting here and like making it awkward. But the, one of the reasons I really enjoyed your book so much is because you walked that line in between the two sides really, really well. And there was a lot of compassion in your writing as well, Lucy. And um, that really came across to me, which I think is why I kind of enjoyed it so much. You know, there seemed to be there was room for everyone in there. Good. Um, I hope so. I, that was definitely my intention. I, I feel deeply compassionate about. For anyone who's had any of these problems sort of across the spectrum I think especially if you'd have had a flavor of these problems yourself it's just I feel like you're sort of in a part of a club of sort of shared understanding and that there is a very sort of deep empathy there for anyone else who's had these difficulties because when you've had it yourself you really really know just how grim it is in a way that you you know you can't communicate just with words and I think that's yeah I really wanted to get that across so I'm glad that it did come across yeah yeah very very much so and just um just to kind of like run it back to um social media something that really jumped out of the book um and I hadn't really thought about it before and I like it when this happens but um mm-hmm. you, we tend to use this blanket term of social media being you know it can be like this really negative thing and of course there's a million one reasons why that that's true but um there's something that you wrote about in the social media section of the book is that we use that blanket term but it's not necessarily down to just social media being bad is it it's much more about the individual using social media and what they do with it right yeah and both those things so um going on social media isn't one single behavior there's lots of different things you could do on social media that could all have different impacts on your um uh on the way you feel um or the way you think about yourself whatever you know it's one thing having a having a like a fun group chat with your friends versus you know spending ages editing a photo of yourselves and waiting for feedback versus you know doom scrolling there's they're all different behaviors and there's across apps and within apps there are different things that you do so it's not meaningful to just say what does social media how does social media affect things but you've also got to think about who's the individual going on social media so what was what's happening for them already what's happening to them in the outside world you know especially with teenagers but with all of us I guess the the socializing we do on social media is deeply intertwined with our external real life social network so it's really relevant if we're going to understand why social media or an app or whatever is making a teenager unhappy, what's happening in the outside world in their social their social life. If you remove the phone, you don't necessarily remove the problem. It's just like a new manifestation of a problem that's already there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I kind of always think with like young people and the social media conversation as well, like um, it can be really patronizing sometimes. And I know certainly it's probably something I've said in the past, but we all say about young people like, oh, it must be terrible for them. Mm-hmm. Like they're having to, and you kind of think, well, that's all they know. It's different yeah, for us, yeah, right? Yeah. It's different for, well, I say us, I'm assuming a lot about how old you are, they, Lucy. But, um, you know, it's like, if that is your world, if that's your reality, it's not for us to tell them how hard it is. Yeah. You know, we can support them and help them, help them through it and try and understand it ourselves. But, you know, that's a very big statement, is it? Oh, it must be terrible. It's yeah, all yeah. that's their Our entire people, existence. People say that to me all the time. I'm like I'm so glad I'm not growing up with social media. I think it's also important to think about this isn't new. Like there are people who are 30 now who grew up with social media, maybe not a smartphone, but with social media on um, their computer. So it's, I think for a long time, we've been saying it's like this generation of teenagers, but it's been going on so long that it's, it's yeah, it's like plenty of adults grew up with this. Um, and it hasn't harmed everyone. I think it's, it for some people, some aspects of social media are awful. Um, but another side of it that doesn't get talked about is that I think some of it can be really 
good for other people. I mean, I don't think people talk enough about the fact that it's fun. Like there's a reason why teenagers are so interested in it. You know, they're very social creatures and it's a, you know, potentially fun opportunity to socialize and interact with your peers. And that's, that gets sort of left out of the conversation. But, but again, that it sort of depends on, yeah, who you are and what you're, what you're doing on your phone for that. Yeah, sure. There was a quote in your book and I've written it down and I wasn't sure whether it came from you or if you were quoting something, but yeah. you said that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Yeah, and that yeah, was yeah. such a good way of looking looking yeah. at it, you know, that made a lot of um, a lot of sense to me. And if you're going to social media in a good place and using it in a way that's healthy for you, then you're going to get richer, right? And if yeah, you're, yeah. If you're not I so mean, good if you're to- popular and you have good friends at school uh, and you share, um, you know, you have lots of followers and you share stuff and you get a lot of attention, then that's probably going to be pretty rewarding and fun. Equally, if you're being bullied and you don't have friends um, or you're in a sort of fractious, difficult friendship group and you can't trust people um, and you're worried about, you know, the reactions you get on your phone or the anonymous messages you get, whatever, that's 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 utterly different setup, isn't it? So, yeah, I I wonder if it's the case that the the people who are all right socially already sort of benefit from it and the ones who are struggling suffer and yeah it sort of becomes a amplifier of what's already happening yeah definitely yeah it's certainly um nice to be able to think about it in a different way you know rather Mm -hmm. than we say oh it's bad and then already like my kids are nowhere near a phone age but already I'm panicking about it it's like oh no hang on about it there are there's so many different factors that are going to um, influence how they use this sort of technology and um, yeah and it's about guiding them through it as well it's not going to go away it's part of how young people socialize now. So it's more about, yeah, guiding them through it, I guess, rather yeah. than necessarily hoping to, yeah, not have to deal with it. It's just part of being teenager and adult now. Yeah, definitely. It's the role of the grown up is to not under, mm-hmm. understand what kids are doing. That's kind of the circle of life, right? That's, uh, yeah, that's yeah, how it, yeah. but you can kind of like work to have an understanding, even if you're not even not you know using it yourself and that's kind of tight there are so there are certain apps where you can as a parent you can totally track everything that happens on your child's phone and I wonder what if parents start including all their messages and I wonder even if that is appropriate at a certain age at what age do you let that go because obviously, you know, if your child's 18 or whatever, you probably shouldn't be doing that. But if you started doing it on the 10, it must be difficult to know when to stop. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, like as a parent, you're going to see some stuff you don't like. And that's yeah, yeah. important that, you know, young people are able to go and kind of do stuff their parents don't like. And, you know, that's and I mean, that takes us quite nicely into the, the other section from the book I wanted to touch on. And that's about environment, you know, and and yeah. these sort of parenting things that can be a massive factor on um, on people's mental health. But, uh, you know, sort of, yeah, the world around us and how we journey through it, mm. um, that has a huge impact as well, doesn't it? On a lot yeah. of these mental things aren't just like coming out of nowhere. There's a series yeah. of yeah, yeah. things that lead up to them. Eh? Definitely. Like, you know, any psychological experience we have ever is is a product of some combination of um you know our biology and what has happened to us yeah you know people disagree about the relative proportions of those but I think it's reasonable to say that it's you know biology is obviously relevant because all your psychology is sort of produced and processed through your brain and your body but yeah it's deeply important to think about how that interacts with 
every experience you've ever had as well yeah I mean that's yeah that's quite a lot isn't it when you think about it like that like every uh every experience but like for my for my day job I work um with a lot of like chronic pain issues I help people with rehab and stuff like that and mm-hmm. often when I um talk about physical pain as so physical mm-hmm. pain is influenced by sort of every thought you've ever had about yourself you know mm-hmm. there's a lot there it's not just quite as simple as uh you know um something happens and then it's painful and and that's it it's more complex and um sort of mental anguish I suppose is exactly the same isn't it there's all these mm-hmm. different factors that are all kind of um yeah or building up something I like to say it's not my quote I don't know whose it is I really like Mm -hmm. it and um but you can't heal in the same environment that made you sick Mm -hmm. and I like that for me is because for you know what played a massive part in my own um stuff that I went through was you know was yeah the way I was living my life the way I had lived my life up to that point and I got to a a stage when that just wasn't viable anymore and something Mm -hmm. broke and I couldn't have gone and got that all the help I did and then gone exactly back into my mm-hmm. old life that just wouldn't have worked it just would have happened again and you mm-hmm. know that environment chapter really um really yeah stood out to me I mm-hmm. think that you know I really like the idea of looking at these different things that's really interesting that you yeah you had that reflection and I think it's really important when we think about what again back to the awareness campaigns and what we're telling people the solution is it's not a fat lot of use giving someone six sessions of CBT if they're in an environment, for example, if they're a teenager being bullied um, or, you know, they're being exposed to domestic violence or they're sort of navigating the consequences of poverty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, I think sometimes there's a tendency now, and it's encouraged by these campaigns, that it's sort of the solution lies within the individual. And therefore, you know, the problem has come from the individual and the way they think about things. And it doesn't stress enough that it's often, yeah, environment and circumstance. And if you don't change things in the environment, it's harder to get better. I mean, that's not to say things like CBT are irrelevant, because whatever situation you're in, you know, there's movement within your mind about the way you think about things and cope with things. But yeah, I think it's sometimes a little bit unfair to imply that people who are just in chronically stressful, disruptive situations um sort of hold the key to solving their own problems by changing the way they think about it yeah yeah or you know doing a bit of yoga or going mm, for a walk exactly. or any of these other any things that yeah. We, yeah it's all definitely. very you know geared towards the individual changing their behavior and therefore implicitly the message is that yeah that if the solution lies within them then then probably the possibly the problem came from them you know yeah yeah, I suppose if we can't, it's a mixture, isn't it? Maybe looking to make changes to the environment and then also having tools to navigate the environment that we're in because you can't always whole school change change your environment. Does that, that make sense? Definitely. So yeah, like bullying is a good example. So maybe you can try and uh, intervene at a school level or, you know, run interventions or uh, get support from parents, et cetera, et cetera. But you can also support the person who's experienced bullying uh, to better cope with and navigate um their social environment which you know if unless they're taken out of school which they're going to have to remain in so yeah I think the two things ideally should happen at the same time you know they influence each other yeah sure something that like as a, a parent to young children that really kind of interests me was some of the factors you mentioned in your book about parenting and how mm-hmm. they've been shown through studies to possibly have a, a an impact and you know like stuff like um, age appropriate risk I've written a few of them down here and like being overbearing and and two hands on and a bit like you know like you said before about people monitoring their kids DMs mm-hmm. and social media yeah. but you know that's sort of there's there seems to be um, a correlation between how much 
uh, freedom to figure stuff out kids have and then what might happen to maybe further down the line if other factors are in place. Right? Yeah. And I, uh, there's interesting stuff about the transmission of anxiety from parents to uh, children. So it's pretty well established if you're, you're more prone to being anxious as a parent, then your your child is more likely to have problems with anxiety as well. It's not a guaranteed thing, but it, but the risk is increased. And one explanation is a partly a genetic one. You know, if you're genetically predisposed to anxiety, then you pass on that genetic risk. But also there's interesting stuff about how, the messages that people convey in their parenting uh, in terms of um, what they communicate about how dangerous the world is and what they change in their child's environment to, to try and make them safer. But then you're, you're accidentally, yeah, sending messages about things being scary, but also, again, maybe reducing their opportunity to learn how to cope themselves which is actually really important for managing anxiety and reducing it yeah sure and then and then the role um the role of the child in that right so if Mm. a child um is behaving or responding in a certain way and that might bring behaviors out in the parent um which then influences the the child and the behavior as well right this is a really interesting thing about when you get a parent an anxious parent an anxious child that's a a, you know a bi-directional relationship they both bring things to that relationship that sort of potentially exacerbate everyone's anxiety and so you, you if you can have for example a family where there's a, a mother with anxiety problems and they she has two children you know one of them has a problem with anxiety and the other one doesn't and the the, the one who's anxious will she will adapt her behavior more for the, for the child who's anxious. She might feel more inclined to protect them from certain experiences because she's, you know, trying to parent them and look after them. Um, but in a, and that she wouldn't do for her other non-anxious child, but in a way that, that accidentally sort of creates this cycle of anxiety between mother and child. Yeah. Which can so be, much- which can be broken. It's not, it's not, a, you know, it's not a guaranteed thing and it's, it's not a sort of thing that's determined forever. There's, there's lots of evidence that, parent and child can get help to reduce that cycle it's it's just a sort of matter of relative risk basically mm. and having an awareness of it right so sometimes mm. we kind of with, mm. especially with behavior related stuff it's like um once you make the subconscious conscious and then it, it's some things are quite easy to change right you can't yeah. I'm just gonna, not, i didn't know i was doing that i'm not yes. gonna do it anymore you know yeah 100 percent, definitely yeah, sure. Lucy, I'm really um, conscious of your time and we're sort of approaching an hour here. And there's one more thing I just wanted to kind of touch on before I let you go. And you mentioned at the start that a lot of your work focuses on, on young people and adolescents mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And um, we kind of know that a lot of people are going to experience um, problems with their mental health. It's much more likely to happen at that younger mm-hmm. age or things start earlier and then mm-hmm. turn into something later on. And I was just wondering if there was any sort of clear and obvious things that you could talk about as to why that seems to be a problem because there's lots going on during i know it's a really big question to finish on but um there's a there's um there's a lot going on in particularly in those teenage years isn't there that can have a factor and again just from reading the book i know that there's a a few of them that kind of once i read about i was like oh yeah that kind of makes sense yeah so if you're ever going to develop a mental health problem uh, it will it will probably happen by the time you've reached your early twenties. It on the depends on the disorder, like anxiety disorders tend to happen in uh, develop in childhood, and depression is more like the late teens, for example. But but broadly, if it's going to happen at all, it will most likely to happen uh, by your early twenties. So adolescence is a really interesting period of risk that people focus on and want to try and understand. I mean, broadly, I see it as it happens because it's this period of massive change. So it's a period of massive 
biological change. So it's lots of development happening in your brain, um, lots of physical changes happening in your body because of puberty. And those two things can interact with each other as well, which bring about all sorts of changes in terms of feeling more extreme emotions or having more difficulty managing your emotions, um, being more inclined to do risky things, that kind of thing. But in parallel with all that, your social world changes massively as well. And I, th- I think we sometimes forget just what a distinct social situation adolescents are in. And that's what I'm focusing on quite a lot in the, the second book that I'm writing now. School is a quite a unique social situation. It's very intense and you're with the same small group of people for a long period of time and you often socialize with those people that you're spending your day with you don't really have that in any other time of life unless you happen to be in the army or whatever and so that's and then you've got all the legitimate you know massive academic pressures it is legitimately a stressful disruptive period of life and it's so the idea is that these two things happen in parallel the sort of biological and the environmental um can well, I like the quote um Jay Geeds, which is moving parts get broken. So the idea that when you're in this state of flux, things are more vulnerable to to break or go wrong, basically. Yeah. Yeah, that makes so much uh so much sense to me. You know, mm. you take the the biological stuff and then you take the environmental stuff mm. and then you kind of like throw in a, you know, not having the right words to describe your experience. Yeah. And it's just this big melting pot of of stuff and um i just think it's fascinating and i think it's so interesting and fun as well um to to kind of explore and and dig into a little bit and um yeah i've enjoyed chatting about it thank you also actually you make a good point that adolescents can be fun as well so i think one message i'm always really keen to get across is not all teenagers are unwell like just because it's a period of risk it doesn't mean you they all develop a mental health problem and the sort of public message at the moment is that they're all in crisis and i think that's unhelpful for all of them you know plenty of teenagers are all right plenty of teenagers were all right you know even in the pandemic and they're not they don't really get a look in because there's such a strong message about the ones who are unwell but i which and it's important to talk about them as well but i, I think we should also promote the message, reassuring message, especially to parents and teachers that that some teenagers are fine. Yeah, yeah. And the ones that are fine, what's it doing to them to read about this crisis that they're not a part of and think like, should I be? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. And, that you know, and they're open to another rabbit hole for us to yeah. disappear down. Yeah. Um, Lucy, thank you so much for today. I really appreciate your time. And um, yeah, I had a, a lot of fun. And yeah, that was really cool. It was one of there's so many things we could have probably done an hour on. So to get through a few and navigate I it, I think we did a good job. Yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah. That's super. Thank you very much for your time today, mate. It was lovely to meet you. Okay. Thank you for having me. big up to the proper mental podcast the proper mental podcast